Hello, listeners. This is the Eclipse Viewer, episode 58. The Eclipse Viewer is the podcast dedicated to the Criterion Collections Eclipse series line of DVDs, bare bones editions covering some of the overlooked, lost, forgotten classics of uh, days gone by. And we're here in the home stretch. Uh, as people who've been following this podcast for a while know, uh, we only have one set left to cover, and it is Eclipse Series 3 Late Ozu. Uh, this is uh, probably, in my mind, the blockbuster essential set of the whole series, just because the magnitude of the films is, 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 is you know, I don't know, kind of indescribable in some ways uh, for anybody who's kind of fallen under Ozu's spell. Uh, these are five, really, I, I consider them masterworks, uh, right up on the same level as uh, the Tokyo stories, the late springs. And we're going to talk a little bit about the, the fine variations uh, in themes and, and uh, settings and, and uh, just the ideas that Ozu engages us with in these films, which I guess because of uh, their somewhat overlooked status, uh, they don't maybe make those sight and sound lists uh, the way that uh, the other films I've already named do, uh, but they are still you know, quite fascinating, quite absorbing films, and I'm really uh, thrilled to finally be at this place. We've been anticipating this for really almost a, f a few years now as we've kind of seen the end coming in sight. Uh, covering the full range of the Eclipse series, and now here we are. So I'm joined, as always, by Trevor Barrett. Hello, Trevor. How are you? I'm good. How are you, David? You sounded good. Oh, good. I've just <laughs> finished my uh, 28th bottle of sake here to uh, get ready for this episode. So well, well, hey, the empty bottles are piling up around let me, here. Let <laughs> me just bring up another reason for celebration that I'm not sure you're aware of. So this box okay. set came out. Ten years ago, at about this time, I, I think it was June or July oh, 2007. Okay. You and Rob yeah. started recording um, the Eclipse Viewer five years ago in July. So congratulations. Mm. There's a five and ten year anniversary, but the significant one, obviously, is you've been doing this for five mm. years. Get mm. that sake out. <laughs> mm. Uh, this is my Ozu. Mm. Huh. <laughs> a very subtle response. Auspicious. I like it. <laughs> yes, that's auspicious. <laughs> well, it's not just me and Trevor today. We are very pleased to have a guest with us, uh, Mr. Matt Gasteyer, another familiar name and voice to those who are familiar with the Criterion Cast uh, social media universe. Matt, welcome to the Eclipse Tour. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited about this. Uh, I love this box, and uh, I'm, I'm honored to be on your uh, sort of not, if not last episode, but last stretch of episodes. Yeah, yeah. We uh, we've always kept the door open that if uh, Criterion ever does see fit to throw another Eclipse volume our way, uh, Trevor and I will get it back together. But uh, we don't have anything planned for the next several months, and we will be finishing this. Uh, coverage up uh, in a three-part series. Now, there are five films in the uh, late Ozu set. Uh, we're going to stretch those out into three different episodes by really talking about uh, the post-Tokyo story phase of Ozu's career. This, are, this is the period that is covered in these five films with a few others that are thrown in. Um, so our plan today is to talk about uh, the first two in the set, uh, Early Spring and Tokyo Twilight. Uh, in our second episode, our second part of the series, we're going to be talking about Equinox Flower, which was Ozu's first foray into color film. And then we're going to also do some brief overviews of two films that aren't part of this set, but are 
pretty well known in their own right, having had their own standalone Criterion releases. We're going to talk about Good Morning, recently reissued uh, in a very beautiful Blu-ray, one of the my favorite releases of the year so far, and uh, also uh, Floating Weeds, which is a still only a DVD set from Criterion paired with the uh, a story of Floating Weeds from the 1930s, a Ozu silent film. Uh, so we're going to talk about those two films, which is kind of unusual. We don't typically incorporate non-eclipse titles into this series, but it's Ozu, so we're going to do something special and really just cover those three, uh, those first three color films of his before we come back with Late Autumn and The End of Summer, the last two films in this set. And we're kind of bantering around the idea of doing a Criterion Cast main episode of an autumn afternoon sometime after uh, we've covered all of these just to kind of give Ozu's uh, career uh, its proper coverage and full consideration. So, Matt, it's really great to have you with us. Uh, you are indeed a, a dyed-in-the-wool Ozu uh, aficionado. <laughs> why, don't you, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what Ozu means to you? I think uh, you were a very natural pick for us to say, let's get a guest on here. So, uh you know, maybe for people who haven't heard you uh, wax rhapsodic about Ozu in the past, uh, give us a, your little first take on that. Sure, I was I was going to say opine, but I think wax, wax rhapsodic sounds great as well. Uh, <laughs> they both work for the Ozu tone. Um, <laughs> yeah, I uh, came to Ozu um, for people who don't know. I uh, started a project to watch every Criterion spine. Um, and did a, a little blog on it just to kind of keep up with it and to, to have a journal, um, about it's, it's been about eight years now. Um, and, uh, so I, I had seen Tokyo story previous to that, um, as part of kind of, you know, when people, I think like many people, when I first started getting seriously into film, uh, you go to look at the lists to see what the quote unquote greatest movies ever made were. Um, and Tokyo story was right up there on the sight and sound list. I think it was probably, uh, the 92, it was either the 92 or 2002 list. I'm not sure when I, I first watched the film, but, um, I took a look at it and there it was, I had never heard of Ozu before watched the movie and could not understand what the fuss was about this small little <laughs> family movie about, yeah. um, mm -hmm. you know, an old, old couple visiting there their family in the city, uh, it's sitting next to, um, citizen Kane and, uh, you know, eight, eight and a half and all of these kind of towering masterpieces. It just seemed so out of place. Um, yeah, where's that grab you by the throat? Moment? Yeah, where's that like exactly. awesome cinematography? Yeah. Where's the, where's John this? Wayne sweeping Natalie Wood off her feet to hold her up in the, <laughs> in the sky? Um, yeah, it, it just seemed, um, very, very odd to me. And, um, I, uh, went back to it during my project and liked it a little bit more, but still felt kind of like, what, what is the deal with this guy? Um, and it wasn't until my third or fourth Ozu movie that I really started to realize, uh, what he was trying to do, what, uh, was so special about his movies, which I think ultimately comes from his ability to, uh, draft characters in a way that feels much more natural and uh, less um, mechanical than uh, the average movie, even the average great movie, I think. Um, and uh, what he was doing with his camera, which um, I think 
after watching so many movies and, uh, and kind of getting the sense of what technique is, you really start to see just how skillful what he does is um, in its um, seeming simplicity. And more importantly, on an emotional level, I began to really fall in love with his characters and his view of the world and how he um, presents things in a very uh, removed and yet humanistic way. And I, I think there's something very powerful about his films once you get on his wavelength that is unlike any other uh, filmmaker uh, that has ever made movies, really. Um, and so, you know, I, I started to watch more of his films and really fell in love with them. Um, probably, I think it was probably either early summer or uh, The Only Son There Was a Father, I think, with, with that, that set was a was a huge turning point for me where I really started to understand what he was doing. And in a lot of ways, those two are kind of the first films that were Ozu movies uh, in the sense of his sec the second phase of his career. Um, you know, there uh, brothers and sisters of the Toto, fa Toto family was in between those two. But um, I think th that that stretch was really where he started to um, take on the style that people think of when they think of Ozu and uh, partially because of the, that the fact that they were kind of stripped down versions of the later masterworks. Um, I re you know, it's, it's very easy to kind of see immediately what he's doing and, um, and, and really fall in love with his world. And uh, this set was, was another big jump for me because uh, when I first got it, I, I, I had seen all of the mainline releases and um, had watched a few of his earlier films, uh, silent films that uh, are not available in the mainline. Um, but I think these really fill out the, the kind of peak of his career. And um, I'm really excited to talk about them because I think there's a lot of different levels to, uh, to come at them with. And um, it's uh it's a real it's a real treat to be here and and talk about my favorite director because um I think there's just so much to unpack. Yeah, there certainly is. Yeah, Trevor, why don't you go ahead and just give us a little uh, overview of how you approach this set, and then uh, we'll start getting into the films and and go from there. All right. Well, I have to start with a confession. I've been telling you for a long time that I will have caught up with my progression through Ozu's work chronologically. Um, <laughs> I didn't do that. I failed. Um, part of the reason is well, that, there's, yeah. that, that you know, there's a lot going on, but also Criterion's releases over the last few months have been large, and I've got review copies of the sets, and I've just felt mm -hmm. obligated to stay, stick with those when... Um, uh, with all of that, but um, well, you know, when Straw Dogs comes knocking on your door, you better answer. Right? <laughs> yes, you, I had a lot to take care of that night and a lot of cleanup the next day. Um, so, anyway, yeah. Um, but part of it too is I've I've been enjoying them so much. I I stopped feeling the desire to just get them done for this. But but you'll 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 know that since um, we're starting today with the film after Tokyo Story, that if I didn't catch up. 
I'm still quite um, ignorant when it comes to to that film and to some of the ones that preceded it. I'm almost there, um, and I will get there. There's there's no doubt. I've been enjoying it so much. Uh, and these these two films we're talking about today, Early Spring and Tokyo Twilight, just continue to to build um, my own estimation of Ozu and his work. It's it's been it's been a great journey. Um, I've really, really enjoyed um, getting to know his style, you know, as, as it does kind of shift and start to see his perspective of the world, kind of like Matt was saying. And it, there, there hasn't been um, too many painful moments where I sat there and looked back and thought, well, what in the world was that? And I think part of that's because, you know, I've listened to plenty of people say that was their first reaction and then it started to grow on them. And, and I, I, just, I guess I tried really hard to get um, kind of on the wavelength using this, the skills and the, the ideas that, that folks like Matt, when you're talking about Ozu, have, um, have expressed. And, and that's been very helpful because I feel like I've been able to, to really dig in. But as I watch Early Spring and Tokyo Twilight and see so many layers as I prepared to, watch, or to talk about them for this episode, I realized... I'm still missing out on so much that I've watched because there there's just a whole lot going on, even though it looks like mm-hmm. on the surface that there isn't. There is so much going on in these films, and I guess in particular for me, Tokyo Twilight, that it just really struck me on a personal level as well. Uh, it, it, it'll be great. I'm, I'm excited to talk about him. Um, I can't say Ozu's my favorite living director because I still think I'm I'm missing you know, this latter part of his career where most people, uh, I think, say he's at his peak. Um, but certainly I've enjoyed the silence. I've gotten through all of them that are that are extant and available through, you know, Filmstruck, Hulu, um, Criterion Eclipse sets, all of that. And and I'm up into the into this later period. And, you know, if, if, if you're like me, listeners, and you, you're not quite there, you, you're wondering where to begin with, with Ozu, you know, the best thing to do, I, I for years I thought I'll get there someday, and the best thing to do, I think, is just to just to dig in, just to start and give it, give it some time. Um, it will pay off, I believe, truly, for almost any viewer um, willing to give it a shot. This, this stuff will start to pay off, and, and you can come to know what everyone is talking about when they're talking about this great filmmaker and his great films. So where, where did you, uh, where, where have you gotten up to chronologically? I think I'm in the early fifties. Um, I think I'm right before late spring. I can't remember so the you, full you sequence. Seen there. Late spring I have not then? seen late spring either. Oh, okay. That's a that's a late forties. So yeah, just, yeah. just okay. have you seen have you seen a hen in the wind? Yes. Okay. Yeah, because yep. a hen in the wind, I think, is is kind of a, a key film for understanding both these two films and kind of the rest of his uh later period. Mm-hmm. Um you know, because it wasn't a success and I'm sure we'll get into it. Um but I but I think it's it's so uh, clearly about the war and, and, and also just, um, you know, deeply melodramatic to a degree that, that even when we get into Tokyo twilight, I don't know if it, it gets quite to that level. Um, so I, I think it is, it is a very interesting film for this, but late spring is, uh, I've, I've, uh, been on, on, um, criterion close up, 
putting myself out there as saying late spring uh, is the greatest movie ever made. And I, I do think uh, that that would be, if I had a sight and sound boat, that would be my, my number one pick. And I think uh, it kind of uh, began the, this period of, of Ozu and um, uh, set him kind of on his path and, and, and established him as, as the major talent that, that he became over the next uh, 15 years. And it's probably um, that episode that made me think, I don't need to rush this anymore. I don't need to, to, to throw late spring Tokyo story under my belt in a couple of days to catch up. I, I know I've got treats out right. there. And knowing you were coming on, I thought also, and, and Matt and David will talk about how these all connect. <laughs> so. It's fine, yeah. Well, you know, there's there are many different routes into Ozu, but he is this distinctive presence. I mean, you can be a fan of all different sorts of cinema, genre, you know, art house classics, you know, Hollywood, Golden Age, whatever. But Ozu, even Japanese cinema, excuse me, Ozu is kind of its his own thing, his own distinctive realm. And even uh, if you want to go to Paul Schrader's famous transcendental style of Bresson and 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 dryer and you know that kind of unique little niche that uh, Schrader's theory kind of defines and and, and many people have ex- accepted and bought into that and 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 I think it is a a, a very in- interesting interpretive framework for those films. But you know, Matt said earlier, you know, where I I, I think Ozu and Bresson diverge, and I just did a, a Flixwise episode on uh, two key Bresson films, A Man Escaped and Pickpocket. I don't think it's been published yet, but it'll be coming out soon, where we talked about the the artifice of, of Bresson, and, and Ozu is so naturalistic, and that's where I, I don't see those two directors connecting, because Bresson kind of strips the humanity away from his characters in some ways. And, and he just whittles them down so that you feel like there's this constructed thing in front of you. Ozu's really does feel like you're, you're sitting in the actual lives of real human beings. And, and that is unique uh, among so many directors. I think he did set a path that other directors have, you know, adapted for their own purposes, but, but Ozu's dedication and his, his focus on, 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 not just the style of filmmaking, but of really, you know, finding actors who, who were on his wavelength and who would help him establish this, this very inhabited milieu, um, in this lighter phase of his career is just, is just really remarkable. And, and even if you've seen these films multiple times as, as I have, and I'm sure Matt has too, you're always just kind of, it's like revisiting a, a very, key moment in my own life as I kind of re-examine and, and, and re-experience these various crises. And, and what we're going to see in the films we're talking about today uh, are really some of Ozu's darkest and, 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 and kind of most pessimistic themes, uh, explorations, which were, like we said, his follows, follow-up to Tokyo Story. Uh, you know, Tokyo Story, early spring, you know, these are, these are kind of the acknowledged masterpieces. I see Autumn Afternoon is often a, a put up there as well as kind of a, a, a key gem of, of Ozu's work. Did you mean late but spring? Really, 
Well, oh, did I say early spring? Said, yeah, I meant late spring. Yeah, okay. late spring Just and checking. Tokyo Story. <laughs> well, yes, and 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 there's a good reason that Ozu isn't among your favorite living directors, forever, because <laughs> he's no longer living. But that that oh, one no, I like slip by. Thanks, thanks for correct. <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll correct you. You correct me. We'll we'll keep this thing running. <laughs> yes, yes. Spare us the emails, listeners. We've got this. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. So you so you got Tokyo Story uh, and late spring as kind of those you know pillars, if you will. But what I love about this set is just they they fill in so many other um, uh, sort of strata of the social environment, you know. Uh, Tokyo Story, because it is does have this sort of sentimental uh, pull of the aging parents and the ungrateful children and uh, the way it, it kind of tugs at the heartstrings. I, I do understand why it stands out, but I, I really feel like this is all just part of this big tapestry that that Ozu is weaving. And in these other films, these two that we're going to talk about today, he's talking about the lives of younger people. And it's not so much the generational conflict or the the classic Ozu setup of the aging parent and the, you know, daughter leaving home, which, you know, he returned to on a number of occasions. And we'll be talking about some of those films later on in the series. But here we're talking about... Uh, you know the 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 experience of the salary man and, and a young couple, and then you've got a really a focus on on two daughters and and their own um, experience of growing up in a broken home, and then there's the father's reaction to the things happening around him. So Ozu is shifting his focus and and looking at sort of different uh, layers of the society around him. And then connecting to something that's very universal and human. Um, I, you know, I, I understand again why some people say, "Oh, he's the most Japanese or of directors and all that." But really, he's he's so humane, and the only way he can do that is by talking about the society that he knows, that he's a part of, that he's emerged from. But he finds these common themes that really are transcultural, and I think he's just got an amazing gift for capturing that uh, without sensationalizing it. In fact, very deliberately de-melodramatizing it, if that's such a word, by, by, by pulling out some of those cheap shots or some of those easy opportunities to you know, manipulate our emotions. Uh, but the emotional impact sinks in all the more strongly when you realize you know, not only you know, the message or the story he's telling, but the way he's telling it it just kind of i don't know it opens our eyes to the 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 tragedies and the subtle uh, pleasures of life that you know you don't get when it's full bore in your face with the violin swelling or the dramatic music uh syncopating with your heartbeat and getting you all pumped up with adrenaline <laughs> and so it's a, it's a really unique experience but but as you've both said it's something you have to sort of settle into and allow to take over and you know, put away the distractions and step into Ozu's world a little bit. Uh, there's so I agree with so much of what you just said, and there's so much to to uh, to respond to the, in in there. But uh, a few things I wanted wanted to touch on were I, I mean I totally agree with everything you're saying about the the idea that he is the most Japanese of of all directors. Um, you know, I always joke that I. I think he's the most Ozuian of all directors um, because <laughs> yes, to get specific. There. Yeah. Because I, I don't, I, I, I understand what people are saying, but I do think it's so much about his 
ability to respond to his society. And I think the, the best way to approach this box and, and indeed most of his films from the fifties is from the perspective of what was going on in Japanese society at that moment. Um, because I think that's ultimately what he wanted to talk about in a lot of ways. When you look at record of a tenement gentleman and Hannibal wind, both, both movies of which were not successful, particularly, um, they were a little bit more barefaced in that um, approach. And I think he realized that this style that he had come to be known for previously was very um, malleable and uh, sort of ready to accept these themes and trends that he wanted to address. Um, and, and these films and the films that, that surround them um, were, are really able to do that in a very natural way that doesn't hit people over the head and is not intended to be um, a message or um, to have any higher meaning than for people to recognize themselves in these films and learn something about themselves. And, you know, I think the, the irony of Ozu is that you're right. These are, these are some of the most naturalistic films uh, ever made. And yet he is ultimately one of the, you know, top formalists of cinema and his style was so particular and so specific that there's actually um, a, a huge amount of uh, non-naturalistic elements of his films when compared to uh, other cinema. Um, but because he's able to execute, ex execute the simulacrum so perfectly, um, you get the feeling that you are living in reality. And once you're able to go into that formalism and give into it, um, there's a, there's a deep reality there. And it, it's a reflection of, of what we see in the world around us. Um, the last thing I want to say uh, about uh, the many great points that you just made um, is that uh, I, I, I think tapestry is a great way to put it. The way that I view uh, his works as a whole and then his works in individually is almost like a, a, a series of fractals. Um, because mm -hmm. when you look at each film individually, there's a full picture there. Um, but you can go out of that film or into that film and find other full pictures. Um, his whole career, the phases of his career, those are all individual building blocks um, that make up his overall kind of message and view of the world. Um, and yet when you go into the movie, he's got fractals everywhere in terms of both his pillow shots and the, the, the geometric designs that he was most fascinated by. Um, but also just in, in the, his style, the, uh, shooting a room, uh, and then zooming in, not, not literally zooming in, but cutting to a zoom in of one section of that room and then coming back out and then shifting to another room that's similar to that, but in a different portion of the house or, or the office, um, and mm -hmm. shooting it in the same way, you know, especially in early spring, he shifts from office to office, shooting them all the same way with the same lineup of, of workers sitting at a desk. But sometimes it's typists, sometimes it's in a bank. Um, 
and it really gives you uh, this this kind of perfect uh, symmetry um, and and complex system within complex system uh, that kind of makes up the world around us and um, you know in the same way that that kind of a coastline can be looked at as one pebble on a beach uh, zooming in all the way or an entire coastline of, of, uh, of a continent. Um, there is a, a, something deeply naturalistic about that uh, approach. Yeah. And, and I think it really, um, it really begins to, to become more and more beautiful the more times you watch these movies and the more of Ozu's films that you do watch because it does become uh, really of a piece. Yeah, even the historic progression, if you think about over the course of Japan's development from the late 1920s into the early 1960s and, you know, his famous shots of, you know, alleys and streets and interior design and office spaces and uh, the decorations on the walls of the uh, various uh, bars and noodle shops and places. It's like you're sort of seeing the Japanese environment going through its own changes. And because he's using very similar shots uh, through all these years and, and the framing is always so similar. You, you get even this kind of this, this texture of historical development of cultural evolution happening. Uh, but it's, it's, it's just, it happens organically. He's not, he's not saying, ah, check this out. You know, it's just, you know, the, the, the trains become more streamlined over the course of time, you know, the, you know, the, uh, electrical grids and, and it just, you know, the, the architecture of, of the homes of the big cities of the rustic villages. Um, you, you're just seeing all of those things reflected be, and because it's, there's this consistency of style, but it, it's also growing and refining over the course of time. Yeah, that's that's just another aspect that makes revisiting his films and sort of jumping into the timeline at various places such a satisfying uh, experience. So, yeah, great. Well, this is some really nice context for why we love Ozu. Um, let's talk a little bit about the films themselves. As I've already said, uh, these are the films that he made after Tokyo Story, which... Uh, was at the time very well regarded. It was a big success in Japan, not a huge you know blockbuster. There were certainly other films making more money, but you know Ozu was was highly respected. Uh, his his the quality of his work uh, had been had been embraced, and and uh, you know he he certainly had his own following of, of people who were always eager to see what Ozu. Uh, was going to do next. Um, there was a little bit of a gap after Tokyo Story, which I think was 1953. Uh, early Spring doesn't come out till 1956. And according to Wikipedia, he was uh, actually assisting uh, Kinyo Tanaka, one of the great female actors of Japan, uh, probably most famous for her work with uh, Mizuguchi. But he was helping her uh, complete a film that she was directing called The Moon Has Risen. I have not seen that, don't know anything about it, but it is kind of interesting and, and something I'd be intrigued to see, uh, Kinyo Tanaka's work as a director. But he had been out of, uh, out of uh, the role of directing films for a few years, and that was... Uh, you know, pretty significant because really, yeah, as a, you kind of alluded to, Matt, he was very productive right after the war years. Uh, of course, you know, he spent some time as a prisoner of war, several months. Uh, and so, you know, he had some some pretty significant interruptions to his career, uh, understandably, when there's a war going on. But I think this was the longest gap uh, 
between films, between Tokyo Story and early springs. I don't know if he was feeling any kind of a pressure or if there was some kind of a, a blockage. I think his uh, his habits had changed a little bit. Uh, his uh, very uh, well-known collaborator, Kogo Noda, the, the script writer, they would have these kind of massive uh, drinking sessions and script writing sessions, and they would spend you know, a series of months putting the stories together. They they had a, a house and, and that they would get in and get into, almost sort of set up camp, but uh, he apparently moved to a new location, a little house up in the mountains, a little bit more secluded. And so you do sense that there's a kind of a shift in the, the creative process going on here. And so maybe just that reset plus a few other commitments, um, you know, sort of took him away from the, you know, the, the creative track that he was on. But once he got back on it, he again became very prolific doing, I think, one film a year up until the end of his life, which was tragically much too short. He died uh, on his 60th birthday. And it's, it is, uh, as a guy who's not that far from 60 myself, it's like, man, that's, that's, that's really, uh, kind of bitter that that he didn't have more years to create more films but uh what he did create is is unforgettable so um yeah that's the kind of little bit of the context uh he's he's getting back at it uh with a story focusing on the life of the younger generation so matt would you want to kind of give us just kind of a little overview of of the early spring the film and uh, let's get into some of the details of, of what we find so remarkable about this movie Sure. Um, just to add a couple of things to what you had said, um, he actually co-wrote The Moon is Risen. Um, oh, okay. So, uh, and was was kind of planning on directing it, um, but had contractual issues. Um, was it with another studio yeah, or something? Yeah, okay. exactly. Um, and yeah. Uh, this was the longest, I believe, the longest time that it took uh, him to write a script early spring. Um, and they, mm. he, he's said that... Uh, everybody made fun of him by calling, calling the film next spring. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, but yeah, so uh, this film, uh, it was a little different um, as, as Michael Koreski mentions in the note, the liner notes for the film, uh, they, uh, there was some pressure on Ozu and, and uh, uh, Shochiku in general to make more youth leaning films uh, and so this was kind of Ozu's answer to uh, the 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 youth films of of the era, uh, the kind of crazed fruit and things like that. Um, and uh, this is one of his uh, kind of more simple stories. Uh, Ozu is is known for is not known for complex plots, but this is even simple for Ozu uh, because the basic story of this film is is a, a salary man who has an affair, uh, with a woman, uh, who he rides the train with to work every day. Uh, and, um, eventually, um, the wife finds out and, uh, they, uh, they make up. (laughs) Um, yeah. And it's not, he has a, yeah. And, and I mean, the, the, there's, there's no, no real way to spoil a movie like this because so much of it is the journey. And it's kind of interesting that the, the story is, is so simple here. Um, because it, it is actually Ozu's longest post-war film, um, because mo- the, the bulk of the, of the film is, is really focused on, uh, the salary man's life, this white collar worker. Um, his name is, is, uh, uh Sugi, Shugi. I'm going to be terrible at, at Japanese names. So forgive me. 
Um, <laughs> he's played by Ryo uh, Akebe, who um, uh, was the lead in uh, Shinoda's Pale Flower in the in the 60s. Um, and uh, so the film starts out just kind of uh, with a with an average salaryman's life, uh, day in the life kind of thing. Um, they wake up early. He's he's tired. He doesn't want to get out of bed. Um, his wife is making food in the morning. He gets on, he goes to the train station, meets up with all of the other workers from his kind of, uh, uh, working class, uh, neighborhood, um, to ride the train into Tokyo. Um, and, uh, it's a, it's kind of a long, uh, sequence of just, uh, the, this mass of workers, uh, that all are all dressed the same, um, going to work, getting off the train, getting on the train, uh, arriving in their offices. Uh, and, um, it, it's almost, uh, it, it remind it reminded me a little bit of like office space. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, space. and more exteriors than you're used to seeing with Ozu, but you're right. He's, he's using the motion of people through the cityscape to sort of advance the story or to put us in this environment. But you're right. That office space comparison of just right. kind of the drones, the ants. Yeah. Uh, and the know, flip side kind of, of it, I think is metropolis. You know, there's this very <laughs> yeah. kind of, um, almost, um, expressionistic, um, um, industrialization um, that is happening, um, and it, it feels like the future to a certain degree. It's this—it's uh, this finely oiled machine that uh, that kind of sucks people in and spits them out at their office, um, where they can uh, yeah. where they can help improve the finely oiled machine. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, the, the the larger society, the the economics of Japan, uh, the in this case the the Toa Fire Brick Company, you know, right. they're they're selling bricks or or <laughs> different different kind of stone products, you know, building materials, presumably, I guess. Right? Yeah, and Ozu takes takes a lot of of opportunities in this film to shoot the 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 exteriors of the office buildings as as these kind of almost infinitely stretching sea of uh, windows. Um, and, and kind of right, right angles that stretch up into the sky, um, that these people occupy. Uh, and, and the sequence ends with, uh, with a couple of the, um, of the workers looking out the window, uh, thinking about how there are 350,000 people out there and, uh, and, you know, just, just trying to run around, uh, dodging cable cars and, and, uh, various things. And uh, the other one says, uh, uh, I was one of them just uh, just a few minutes ago. <laughs> and uh, the other one looks up with a star, realizing that, that you know, he's not he's not this special snowflake. That in fact, there there's just um, an infinite number of, of these workers uh, arriving in the city and uh, and doing their part for the, the larger man <laughs> waiting for them for their production use. Um, yeah. And you know, they could. Go ahead, Trevor. I was going to say, you know, Matt, and, and maybe I'm going to jump a little bit too far, David, if you want to interject. Um, th- your description of all of this really does strengthen your case for these being fractals, because each of these scenes, even though they're formal, 
they don't feel like something like modern times where it's super stylized too, where where they show everyone kind of running to to work, even when they're not showing all of the all of the livestock, you know, and, and comparing it to that. It still looks like um, an extreme version of reality, you know, a, a little bit um, exaggerated in order to make a point in this one. It simply is. I mean, it just it, it, Ozu just puts his camera down. And and you, I don't know. I you get that sense that this isn't rehearsed. It's not a movie that's exaggerating any of this. You know, his home life. Um, we we don't just feel like this is establishing things so much as it's letting us really just kind of sit and dwell there for a little bit. I mean, there's so much mundane um, activity going on that it feels incredibly familiar, even to us today. You know, sixty, seventy years later. Um, uh, on the other side of the world can recognize that groggy feeling of waking up and kind of thinking it's time for work. <laughs> well, and even the personality differences, the wife is laying flat on her mm-hmm. back, facing up yeah. just, you know, and she, and she awakens and she gets up and she's taking out the trash and she's folding up her bed clothes and she's getting about her business while the husband's is kind of thrashing around a little bit. And you could just tell he's, he's more the grumbler. She's, she's just about, look, this is my calling. This is my duty. I am a wife. This is what I do. And, you know, she has maybe a little, little chippy attitude here and there, but she's just going about it. Well, whereas the husband's just like, you know, you just, yeah. you, it's, it's very subtle, but you sense a little bit more of his disgruntledness or his feeling of confinement settling in. And uh, we're not and meeting yeah. them on any special day either. You know, this isn't like no, a day no. where something significant is going to happen. This is simply every day. <laughs> you know, this is this is any given Tuesday uh, of their lives where, where they get up and just get their business started. And that carries on through the office stuff here at the beginning. This is there's nothing significant going on. Um, it's just developing them. The significant stuff is is the reasons underneath their routine. You know, why is she just? Why does she kind of wake up in, in that? They they look separate from the beginning. You know, but they yep. but they again very familiar to you know as part of routine sets in. Um, but what are the reasons for their routines? Why is he groggy? Why is he you know? It's not because he partied hard the night before and all of this starts to settle into the larger themes and their larger dissatisfaction with life and with each other, with their marriage that they weren't expecting. I mean, you know, so so it's it's just it's really incredible to me that he's able to do all of this in in such a, a seemingly straightforward way that that has to take a lot of guts you know, I'm going to tell this story by basically not telling a story <laughs> for for a half hour. It's it's incredible to me. Yeah, I think that 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 stretch is really doing two things. It it it's doing what you're talking about in terms of uh, the mundaneness of their relationship and kind of the routine that they've settled into, where they're they're basically roommates. You know, she kind of um, chides him a little bit um, throughout um, before he leaves and. Uh, it, it's got this very, um, it's, it's intimate in the, in the most kind of, uh, depressing way, you know, <laughs> um, it's uh, kind of like the, the beginning of eyes wide shut where it's like, they're married. They don't need to close the door when they go to the bathroom that, you know, it's not, uh, it's, it's just, uh, it's just one of those relationships that that's carried on because nobody has bothered to do anything about it. Um, and then I think the second thing is, 
is really what Ozu wants to do to put uh, the audience that he's trying to reach into this world, which is you go to work every day. These characters go to work every day. This is the world that they live in. It's similar to the world that you live in. And it allows us, even if we uh, don't work in, in that particular office or take a train to work, it allows us to go into that world um, knowing that, you know, this is our experience because we, we work too. Um, and I think a, a great director um, is able to do that for the time that they live in, is able to kind of put the people who are their target audience in those shoes. But I think Ozu is, is exceptional because 60 years later, we are still able to, to recognize ourselves in such a, a mundane sequence and, and realize that even though, you know, we get in our, our lone car that we can afford, you know, we probably have two cars in the house and put on our iPad or iPhone and, and listen to a, a podcast on the way to work. Um, the feeling of, of this process is still with us and the feeling of meeting your coworkers or the people that you commute with every day um, on your way to work is still, um, is still recognizable and, and easily identifiable to us. Well, yeah. And we, 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 you know, and I'm probably including the, the vast majority of listeners. We we're all inhabitants of this modernity, which basically is, uh, driven by corporate culture, the, you know, the necessity, if you will, if you're going to fully participate in societies that you sort of have to declare your allegiance, whether it's, you know, for a course of a 30 year career, uh, which was often the case, which was presumably the case in, in Japan. Uh, our economy has shifted and people don't necessarily have that same sense of longevity. But you're even if you're moving from one, you know, startup to another or one corporation to another or even small businesses, you're still part of this huge economic machine, which has a you know, somewhat impersonal, even sometimes dehumanizing aspect to it, which is you are a very replaceable part in a, a gigantic enterprise that, you know, um, you know, for the majority of people, uh, you're not going to reap the full range of benefits uh, compared to perhaps what you contribute in terms of your labor. And in the meantime, life is going to be streaming by and you're going to be going through any number of of setbacks, of adversities, of tensions and pressures. Uh, in this case, you know, the couple had a child uh, and and their son died and, and they've got to somehow absorb that grief and continue carrying on. Uh, as the story progresses, the, the salary man, uh, Shoji, uh, finds himself attracted to this co-worker and uh, she's willing and fun and available and lively and fresh in a way that his wife, uh, Miss Matter of Fact, about her domestic chores and stability and routine is just is not anymore. And now he's He's lured into a relationship, and but yet he knows he's got to conceal that because it's not good form. He's got this whole web of relationships that he's uh, involved with with his coworkers, and to get too far out of line with uh, this young woman, uh, nicknamed Goldfish, uh, will have repercussions that he doesn't really want to fully <laughs> deal with if it can be avoided. So, again, this is pretty mundane stuff. I mean, it's not an especially torrid affair. You do get 
one scene of a fairly passionate embrace and kiss, which in Ozu's world is, whoa, <laughs> kind of spicy stuff there. You don't see a whole lot of that, but it stands out all the more because of it. Um, but it's not like this is a vicarious thrill. This isn't the kind of movie that revels in its illicitness before the final comeuppance, you know, settles everything and, and fits within some either a production code or just a moral code saying, now nah, you can't do that and get away with it. You know, you're going to have to pay the price at some point. Uh, nor is it, of course, openly defiant saying, I'm going to have my affair and we're going to run away and we're going <laughs> to have our cake and eat it too, which, uh, you know, some, some, newer movies that don't have the same moral foundation might might try to get away with so uh ozu isn't isn't taking us along for a ride in the sense of uh, you know kind of eliciting thrills or or um indulging in the shock of the scandal he's saying these things happen to ordinary people and they set off chain reactions of events that you know stir us at a pretty deep level and often wind up being very difficult to resolve until life very inexplicably or coincidentally, however you want to view it, kind of gives us an an exit plan and we have an opportunity to reset by <laughs> relocating to the, the mountain village and, you know, putting all that past behind us, which in this particular case, you know, not that we're coming to the conclusion of our discussion, but that that is another aspect is that sometimes life just does radically change on us and what seemed like a hopelessly stuck routine becomes a new chapter and so we make of it what we will. Yeah, and the 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 path to getting there in this film is so economical. I mean, uh, you know, I think the typical film would make the way that the wife finds out about the marriage uh, or about the affair um, much more complex and um, su suspenseful in a way. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, the way she finds out, well, she starts to be, become su suspicious in the most simple way, which is that he does not come home one night. Um, and the way she finds out is, is that uh, Goldfish is uh, kind of uh, called called to task by her peers um, uh, about the affair and gets upset and comes to see him at his house uh, and so she kind of confronts him about the the affair so uh, it really it really could not be any easier and and that aspect of the story could be told in in a twenty minute short um, and I, I think one of the interesting things about this movie is, is kind of, you know, obviously I think the intention of Ozu with this film is, is clear, which is that he wanted to show this situation, um, of, a, of the average worker in the, um, post-war post-occupation economic boom that was about to take place in, in Japan and the, the pathos as he's, Put it um, and and the struggle of of this feeling like even as your as your country and as your economy starts to become a powerhouse, you yourself are ultimately meaningless within within that process. And um, there's there's only so much that you can do to 
take advantage of that boom and to enjoy the fruits of your labor because your particular slice is so small um, in this sea of 350,000 other people. Um, and then the, the heart of the film is, is the affair and, and their marriage. Um, it's where it begins and ends. Um, and I think the, the push and pull between those two things um, becomes very interesting because it's not, this isn't just a movie about one of those things. Um, and in some ways they go together, but in other ways they're, 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 there's a, there's a timeless message. And then there's a very particular to that time, um, social message in the film. Um, and I, I think that that push and pull becomes really interesting because the, the bulk of the film is made up of, um, almost these slices of life in one individual salary man's life. You know, you get the, the, the young person just starting out painting his fence and getting ready to have a baby. You, you've got, um, uh, Shuji, the, the main guy, um, kind of at this point in his life where he could maybe get out of it if he really wanted to, but he's too afraid to do anything about it. And he's kind of encouraged by a couple of those older guys to say, Hey, make your break, man. You're, yeah. you're still got loose ends. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And, and, Chi, and yeah. Chishu Ryu, who's, who's kind of his mentor is basically the older version of him. Um, he's, he's been transferred out of Tokyo. The bosses kind of overlook him to a certain degree. He's been successful, but he's not going to become anybody, uh, too significant in the, in the, uh, in the company. And he knows that. Um, they'll just let him write it out to retirement right. and then give his desk to somebody else. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, and then there's, and then there's Miura who, um, is a, a, a sick worker who, um, is his age, but, uh, you know, they say many times in the film would be, have been perfectly content living, uh, Shuji's life. Um, and yet is, is on his deathbed, um, and uh, potentially on his deathbed. Um, and, and I think, uh, and then there's the, his war friends who are craftsmen, uh, who, as he puts it, have a skill. And, uh, if they were out of a job could find something else to do. Um, and so I, I think there's, there's just these, uh, it's kind of similar to, to Yang's Edward Yang's Yi Yi in the sense of you're seeing these snapshots of one individual life, but through different people, and in that way, you're able to tell the full story of these people's lives. Um, oh, and, the, and then finally, the, the, re, the retired man at the bar uh, who's, yeah. who's, you know, one, wanted to open a shop when he retired, but his, his pension is not going to be large enough for him to do that. So you really get a full picture of the life of an office worker um, within the course of this movie that is ostensibly about this one guy having an affair with a... With a um, mm. Uh, fellow commuter. Um, and, and I think that that aspect of it is, is, uh, is really where the film, uh, is focused and, and it's, it's, uh, it's depressing, but in the same way, these people are so kind of realistic and, uh, they have their own sort of opinions and thoughts about where they are in life and reflections on, on the choices that they've made. And, uh, it, it it's kind of, it's kind of invigorating because you do see um, the potential before the younger people and, and the, the regrets or, or even the, the happiness um, of some of the older people 
and the things that they've seen um, in this process. Yeah, and the, and the promises that uh, people have bought into, uh, which in some ways maybe are being fulfilled. I mean, if you work for the Toa Firebrick Company and you do your basic duties, we will keep you employed for you know X number of years or decades, but at what cost? And and I think you know the 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 months of collaboration that uh, Ozu and Kogonoda put into putting these this script and all the other scripts together is really a process of arranging all these little pieces, these uh, very finely wrought characters, whether you've got three or four minutes of screen time or whether we follow them over the course of the whole film, uh, they're all so well, I don't know, just the way they encapsulate a certain value, a certain perspective. I mean, that that young, sick man who is, you know, uh, fighting for his life from this lung ailment, uh, you know, he, he thinks uh, lyrically about the, the day that he accepted the job and how that was just the happiest day of his life and, and, and how he wishes he could get back to, back to the office there. And, and Shoji is very dutifully waving the fan and, and attending to his friend. But, you know, sort of, you know, you can sort of see the gears turning behind his eyes saying, you know, this ain't all it's cracked up to be, to say the least. And boy, once you get into it, it's just kind of a grind. It's kind of a bore. Uh, you know, he doesn't even have the luxury of a cubicle. When he goes to the office, he's sitting at a table with like eight other guys, <laughs> each having their own little spot. And that's that's where you spend your whole day, you know. And and uh, as, as it turns out, you know, he, he gets a, a transfer. And, and uh, that may not have been welcome news, especially when he had his affair going and his friends in Tokyo. And he's... He's doing it in the big city, and now they're sending him off to the sticks, you know. But uh, the time comes when they have, actually that is the right move. Um, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the goldfish character because this is another uh, sort of a fractal element. I really like that analogy, Matt. Uh, the one I'm going to kind of ponder and play with a little bit. But you know, viewing this movie through the lens of goldfish, you know, from a, a, a female perspective, uh, she's a young woman who's, you know, uh, maybe not dwelled on as a as a as a you know deeply explored character but she does have her own perspective here she's a woman uh you know probably just coming of age herself uh, she's swept up in an affair you don't necessarily get the sense that she's been you know involved in this with a number of other guys you know so she may have thought shoji and she had something special and yet uh, she has her own sort of suffering and and uh misery to endure because he turns out to be very indifferent and that wasn't the impression that she had any anybody want to explore that a little bit or any of the other side characters uh, because again uh, ozu gives us a lot to ponder if you just put ourselves in the shoes of any number of these of these beings uh, for a brief moment of time and reflection well I'll pick up on goldfish a little bit she's delightful you know she we, we first meet her when they're going out on a walk or really kind of get to know her maybe we see her before that i'm not sure um but they're going on a a, a hike hiking <laughs> down down a road um and she's just she's kind of full of life in her own way and and looking for more you know she she's she's energetic um i i love when 
uh, when the, the, the truck is coming, the way that she jumps out in front of it, stands up very straight, waves very, very cheerfully and, and does a nice little bow um, as uh, to the truck driver who's going to let her and Shuji jump in the back. And yeah, she knows she's a pretty young woman yeah. and she can kind of use that well, to get I, her way. <laughs> I, I agree with you, but I don't feel like she's doing anything um uh, maliciously, do you know what I mean? Oh no, not I, malicious. I don't no, think she, she's, she's having fun with it. She's yeah. she's you know she has an ability to grab a man's attention and 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 she's, it's it's all in good fun. I yeah. mean, she's just well and having I, a good time out with just, her friends just, in in her own desire to kind of have a happy day. You know, is the way that I look at it, rather than trying to manipulate anybody. Or, or you know, win over these men. I think she's just trying to add sunshine to her room <laughs> or to the to the right, to the right. to the group, and and she does such a good job. And to see and her, she often is the one woman among a bunch of yeah. men. You know, it's not like yeah, she's she really, running around with her true. girlfriends. Yeah, and to see her just just develop into this relationship, you know, she she also doesn't have any. Just like she doesn't apologize for the other stuff. I never saw her really feel bad or or think this is this is a bad thing. I'm going to do it anyway because I'm just desperate. Rather, this is a a natural thing, um, and she doesn't really understand too well why Shuji would would seem to be embracing this relationship. Which I agree with you. I think she sees as a genuine thing and a good thing for both of them um and then to see him be so indifferent i mean i I like her development and and her kind of realization as as it goes by and especially as all of the friends talk to her about this relationship and and get her to kind of wake up to to the wife but also to the fact that you know at least shuji is aware of these other aspects and it's not going to be as easy, as delightful, and he's probably a little bit more duplicitous than you think. And so, yeah, I think she has a very strong character in the in this film. And and as Matt's saying, you know, it's amazing how quickly you could summarize this film, and yet it's two and a half hours long because yeah. he gives time for these things to just for you to just sit with these characters for a little bit and and. And she, she's one of them who gets a, a pretty good amount of screen time um, as everyone else's lives are going on in the in the corners as well. And then we move to that corner and, and she, you, you just know she's still living. <laughs> she's still going on yeah. over on the other side of the room. And even her fortitude at the end, I, you know, spoiler, schmoiler, whatever. But, you know, when, when you know... Uh, Shoji and his uh, and his wife are about to move off, and they have the big sending off party. She comes in and extends the hand of friendship, and there's no allusion to what they've been through, except maybe a little twinkle in the eye, a little bit of a you know an eye contact, saying, "Okay, I'm I'm sort of giving you my blessing as you move on, and I've learned some things from this process as well." So mm-hmm. again, the, the the affair is not some tawdry you know indulgence or scandal it's it's just it's part of her own maturing and growing up and understanding this is how the world works and this is how my heart works this is how other men might see me and i'll have to just be a little bit wiser (laughs) the next time uh, uh, a man kind of focuses his attention on me and who is he and (laughs) whether he's me i mean none of that is spoken it's it's all implied there I'm, i'm sure i'm reading things into it but it's all right there to be sort of uh, you know, pondered and, and appreciated uh, as you, again, settle into this world a little bit more fully. Yeah, I think, you know, she's, I think kind of what Trevor, what you were getting at um, 
is that she she's not a seductress in this film. She's not trying to. She's just she's just naive ultimately at the beginning, and she's living her life to uh, enjoy it, um, and doesn't think about the consequences. You know, after uh, they sleep together, she says, "You know, I hadn't really thought about your wife, but now I realize that I hate her." Um, and yeah. I, you know, she's she's coming to these realizations as the things happen to her, and I think the the strength of her character is that she is aware of these things when they happen and she's able to learn from them throughout the film really. Um, and I think that final moment, uh, where she extends her hand is, is a moment of dignity for her because she is able to, uh, to say to him that they had this experience that she's not holding anything against him and that, uh, and in, in front of, their friends that this was something that, you know, whether or not I'm going to confirm to you that this happened, this is where this relationship is now. And that's the thing that you need to concern yourself with. Um, and, and the other thing about her, you know, she's so tied in with, with the rest of the workers. Um, and I really love their banter in this movie. And I, oh, yeah. I think it's one of the things that, uh, there's a few other jokes in this movie, which I, I, I definitely, the first time I, I watched this film felt like it was a little bit more oppressive than the sub, my subsequent viewings. Um, there's, it's actually a fairly considering, you know, all of the kind of weighty, um, existential depressing <laughs> subjects in terms of the cog in the machine. It's actually a fairly light film, um, considering, uh, all of those elements, um, and, and a, a big part of that is um, those workers and their almost like gallows humor about the situation that they're in. Um, you know, that I, I laughed out loud this time when they are, uh, they're eating the noodles and they, they say something along the lines of, you know, here it is, our sole joy, eating noodles silently. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, and, but, but, but they know that their, their choices really are limited. I mean, you know, yeah, only a very small percentage really are going to be able to break away, set up their own little noodle shop or, or, you know, little repair shop or whatever it is they might have the ability to do. But most of these people have been sort of born and bred for this system. You know, you go to school, you learn your accounting or or whatever systems maintenance thing that you do, and that's what you've been equipped for. And now you're you're locked in. You well, know, and, and the one and the the thing about being born and bred for it, the one person that they talk about who is their age, who it seems like is actually going to get ahead within the company. They talk about, you know, we, we never meet him, but they talk about how he, it seems like he was born to be a director. And so yeah. it's like, you're, you're not even able to work your way up in this system. By the time you get there, you're already, your fate is already mapped out for you. And this guy yeah. over here is going to take over and be your boss someday. And you're just going to, you know, whittle along until you get your measly pension. And that is still very much a fact of, of contemporary life. I mean, again, it's not that we're all working for the one company over the course of our, our careers, but there are just those people who have those built-in advantages, those connections, and they scoot right up the system. And a lot of other folks are just, they're going to have to find contentment with just middling along of just, 
sort of, you know, making a little bit of, uh, um, you know, a little bit of extra money to do the fun things, uh, to go hiking with your friends, to have a night out of drinking, of, of eating noodles as a group and, and, and doing those little mundane d- daily uh, diversions that kind of lighten the load and, you know, keep us feeling like we're living a life that is satisfying and, and meaningful in, in some respect. But yeah, a lot of it is the stuckness of it, but it's it's what are you going to do to cope with it all? And, and uh, you know, I, there's that scene where, where they have the... Uh, you know the boat, uh, the the what's what's the word? rowing? I guess or just rowing, and that's that's one of those little cumulative scenes at the end there that kind of puts a little perspective on the whole thing of just the the, the motion of the men, uh, you know, following the orders, rowing hard and getting that boat going as fast as they can. You know, not for any particular destination in mind, but we're just going to row <laughs> and, and move fast and see where we wind up and on such a beautiful day <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know I, th- the springtime of our lives you know? yeah i think that's the you know the the title is so perfect because it does reflect this this time of hope and of of budding and it really does depend on your perspective i think that on any given day i could watch this film and feel all of the oppression and then I think on the next day I could watch it and feel some of the light, you know, and the hope and the uh, the perspective that, that we're supposed to get um, with it. I think that it can go either way, even though I know it can go either way, just depending on what how I want to view it that day. I think there's there's so much uh, that's humorous in their gallows humor. I love how you put that, Matt. But then there's also things like I, I've worked 35 years to find that life is an empty dream. And those can hit home yeah, at certain yeah. times. That's a gut punch right there, yeah. yeah, for sure. And you know it's true. It's not just some some momentary statement. Um, and so there, there's so much going on in here. Um, it, I, I, well, I, I, I really, I, I kind of am <laughs> speechless. I, uh, yeah. how how amazing this 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 construction can be to to fill this thing with so much life, so much, and and, and you know. The, the whole gambit of it, again, that you can watch one thing and, and see the hope and the despair is is really delicate. I just, I can't imagine, I don't know how he does it. I can see it. Yeah. I, we can talk about his techniques and all of that. But to have the confidence to go out and shoot this thing and think it's sticking, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do right. that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, this movie and, and Tokyo Twilight, this is, you know, pretty much like five hours of, of film, you know, at these these two films. That's that's a bit of an ask. You know, Tokyo Story was, was a little bit on the lengthy side as well. And so Ozu was making, you know, what are almost, for him, sagas, you know, in terms of the, the runtime and the, the number of characters and, and just all the things that are happening. But you know, this does end on a note of reconciliation. You know, Shoji and his wife do work through this crisis they do establish well, a new home together yeah. I, yeah i would say the work is yet to come and that's one thing well, i love sure. about this movie is mm-hmm. it doesn't yes. present that as a culmination as much yeah, as a no beginning end, right, right. Mm-hmm. I, I i love right, how but, that's but, like but, the last three minutes of the movie i mean it's so short yeah. there it's all about yeah. the journey mm-hmm. yeah and and uh you know we uh we just watched uh to joy with a with a group of of our yeah. friends who are going through um, the Bergman's catalog and, and the end of that film, obviously there's, you know, with the, with the death, there's another twist to come, but the, 
the last stretch of their relationship is so uh, sort of over the top. We are now in love again. Everything is better. We're going to move on with our life and have wonderful lives together. Um, and the, this ending is not at all like that. I mean, in, no. uh, the, 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 the final thing we hear is, uh, this isn't going to be that long of a time. It'll go by quickly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's definitely, there's def- it's definitely up in the air. You know, we haven't seen any change in his personality to the point where no. we would expect that he'll, he'll never have an affair again. Um, you know, right. and Shoji really is kind of an asshole throughout the whole film. You know, I mean, yeah. he's, he, he's not particularly easy to empathize with. Um, he, he internalizes a lot of what he's going through. I've got it playing on my monitor right now, and I'm watching the scene where Goldfish is just slapping him, <laughs> and he's just standing there, just taking it. You know, yeah. it's just like, wow. I mean, it's like, you know, don't don't be afraid to break down a little bit. I mean, you know, give her something. Uh, but no, he's just he's just a sponge absorbing it all, and and kind of wrapped up in his own ego there. And it's, it's a you tough know, there's, role there's definitely, too. I mean, there's not is, a yeah. lot to do, and I, I you know I have mixed feelings about him in this movie. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think. Sometimes I, I think it, he works really well in it, and I think he's he's got the right. He was cast very well in the movie. Yeah, he's a he's got the matinee idol looks. I mean, he's a good yeah. Of a it man makes and, sense and, why people kind of are hovering around him all the time. Sure, um, sure. But at the same time, uh, you know, he's he's so he's kind of like the 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 narrator of the stranger in that he's just so devoid of any kind of emotion um, and so passive to the the active things that he's doing to kind of affect other people's lives in this movie that it's, uh, it's just, it's a difficult tightrope to walk. And, uh, you know, I, I think sometimes I'm more invested in what he's going to kind of the subtle things he's going to do next, um, than at other points in the movie. I, I would say his performance is kind of one of my, my least favorite things about this movie. And I, I love this movie. So it's not saying yeah. a lot, um, but I do think, uh, you know, I, I recognize that it's a difficult line that he has to walk. Yeah, true. I mean, it, this is a scripted character and as I'm saying, you know, kind of open up a little bit, let us in. That's just not who he is. Right. That's just not his, his persona at all. Um, yeah. And I wonder how yeah. much of that is, you know, and I, I wonder this about all of Ozu's films because the war is such a specter over these yeah. movies. Like, I wonder how much of that is is intentionally uh his response to being in the war Um, well i think about you know my own grandfather who fought in the pacific you know against the japanese and 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 some of his own mannerisms i mean you know he certainly had emotions and things but there was a certain stoicism about that And and you're right i think that's the other really kind of big piece of this is the war buddies and and what happened to this group of men as they all kind of assimilated back into society. I mean, they're all brought in for a common purpose of, you know, fighting a war and, and doing their various roles in, in the combat situation. But now that that's all done, they kind of drift into their own respective callings and they get together based on this common bond. But really all they have in common now is the willingness to sit around and get drunk (laughs) and, and sing the old songs and relive the old memories and sort of compare notes. But, 
you know, Shoji's kind of moved off in another direction. Uh, Ozu always does a pretty good, you know, comical drunk scene, I guess. You know, there's always <laughs> those little those little enjoyments. And, and the two guys, I, I don't know their names, but they're both familiar faces. Uh, they, you know, that was a, that, uh, to me, it was a very much a laugh out loud moment. Just, uh, you know, they come staggering home and the wife is just sitting there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just, and his discussion with her about giving her a pot. <laughs> It's just, yeah, it's very yeah. dry, but very funny. Yes, there are yeah. actually a lot of jokes in this movie. Um, oh yeah, you yeah. know it's it's not it's not um, kind of devoid of humor, which we'll get to <laughs> in the yeah. next film. But I think yeah. you know I, the one of my favorite uh, jokes in this is very it's a very like subtle joke um, is uh, is the neighbor um, discussing um, with uh, Masako the wife. About uh, when she caught her husband uh, in an apartment uh, with with his uh, mistress, and she walked in, and, uh, confronted him, and there he was shaving Benito, uh, and um, they um, and then she goes across after telling this story and, and immediately hands him the the box to shave some Benito for her. <laughs> that was wonderful. I I just laughed out loud as well, <laughs> <laughs> just because and and she's you know and he's just kind of swept up like well yep. what a, yeah sure of course gotta we'll do talk. it <laughs> yep, yep. she's the boss <laughs> hey well we're about an hour in so we should probably wrap up this just again like you said matt uh, and trevor too there's a lot to unpack here we will not exhaust any of these films i'm sure even if we <laughs> go on and on but uh any final thoughts on on uh, early spring before we uh, maybe take a little break and then get back into tokyo twilight um, well, I had one quick uh, sure. thing thing to point out. There were there are two movie posters in this movie. Um, Ozu famously mm-hmm. put a, an enormous amount of movie posters in his silent films. He didn't do that quite as much um, post war, but um, there is uh, in um, in the bar. I think the milk stand. Um, there's a uh, Duvivier poster for um, Marianne of My Youth, which is a film that Duvivier made in the mid fifties. And then um, in the alleyway right outside, in the distance, you can see um, an East of Eden poster, which I think is a good um, yeah. lead into Tokyo Twilight. That's a nice marker of, of time as well. I mean, yeah, I, you know, there's there's some pretty cool movie posters in Good Morning, which maybe we can do some uh, trivia right. spotting uh, next time <laughs> uh, we get together. But, um, you know, Ozu definitely has an eye and, and you know, every Every detail, I mean, some of, some of the details are just, you know, the bottles of booze on the counter behind the bar and, and things like that that are very lived in. But, you know, with posters on the walls and, and things of that sort, uh, just like the framing, just the way that he uses the, you know, the, the walls and the windows and the architecture to, you know, sometimes isolate his characters. Yeah, those decorative elements are not there by accident for sure. So it is always fun to kind of see what elements he's he's kind of putting in the background there just one more rewatchability thing to uh chalk up to his credit trevor you got a final thought for us on uh, early spring no no i think we've covered a lot <laughs> That's actually fine. Okay, I, good, I, i've good. really enjoyed it i'm i'm excited to get to tokyo twilight it's actually my favorite of these two so boy we've, oh, yeah. we, well, we, we, we've talked a lot about this it's continued to deepen and enrich it for me so 
Okay. So, Trevor, you mentioned just now that, uh, you know, Tokyo Twilight was your favorite of these two anyways. So uh, why don't you just kind of give us a little lead in there, maybe summarize the the story or whatever you want to do to kind of launch the conversation. We'll just pick it right up. Yeah, I hope I can be as concise as Matt here. Let's see. (laughs) It's a little harder. (laughs) This This one might be a little bit more complex, but I think in general you can still boil it down to... It opens up with um, an elderly man. He's not not elderly in that he's retired. He still works, banker. Um, he was a single father for most of his life. But his daughters, he has two daughters, and they've both um, they've both grown up. One of them has left the house and gotten married, and the other one is a little bit younger, hasn't gotten married, and is also a little bit more rebellious. Well, when this father goes home the the first night of this um, this movie. They're both there again, back at his house, and they both are obviously having some some concerns and some trouble. And as the movie goes on, we, we just we learn a little bit more about their concerns, their problems. The the woman who's married is having some marital issues and, and they they've been issues since the beginning. She this was kind of an arranged marriage um, that her father pushed her into and there's never been much happiness or love there, and now the the husband is uh, you know drinking more and more and more, and she's had enough of it and has decided to leave him, and she's taken her own young son uh, out of that house and returned to live with her father. Um, the younger daughter, um, she is uh, back at the house, and and she is actually very secretly hasn't told anybody she's pregnant. And all of this starts to kind of come together. None of them really are talking about the big problems. It's just trying to get by. The dad's still trying to be a little bit controlling. Um, and that's the general setup. And it goes on like that for, for some time. Um, we learn a lot of secrets about this family. This is, I, I saw a lot of people consider this a, a melodrama. I mean, there's, there's a mother out there who's you know still alive and they run into her. There's this pregnancy. I'm just going to spoil everything right now. There's abortion. There's um, a death, and maybe it's even a suicide. And and there's all of this stuff going on, and yet Ozu still manages to make it feel much more um, f- relatable and familiar for those of us who maybe haven't lived through all of that drama in, in a short period of time um, because he's he's – really dealing with the interpersonal relationships between these characters with their inabilities to to communicate um, either e- between generations but also even just amongst themselves for a large part of the movie Akiko the younger daughter she's looking for the boyfriend I mean it, it's like a search um, where he's always uh, one or two steps ahead of her and she you know has to go there and here there's just all of these people kind of living in their own, their own pain and and where that leads them. Um, I've got there, there's so much else I think to discuss about this that certainly is a very simplistic, <laughs> if not very concise, um, uh, rundown there's of this mahjong. film. There's mahjong, lots of mahjong. There's cards too, and, and palin- palinko. What do they call it? Pachinko. Pachinko. Yeah, that's yeah. it. I couldn't think of it. Right yeah, pachinko cards. A lot of things to pass this time, um, and I think they all say something interesting and unique about each of the characters. Um, but as in a nutshell, 
There's the plot. It's it's fairly dramatic, fairly bleak. This is called Tokyo Twilight. It's it's a it's a film that takes place in the winter time, which is I think fairly unique for Ozu, and um, especially in these last bits where you get you know autumn movies, summer, spring, all these different things. Well, here's one that takes place in winter, and most of the film is at night and in these kind of oppressive atmosphere. Um, which can also look comforting at times as the film begins. It's almost like, a, ah, the day is over. But that's mm. also when things can get a little bit out of control and intimate and, and where your nightmares can come alive. And I think Ozu does so much here um, with all of this. And it's beautiful. This is one of my favorite films in the whole entire Eclipse series. Um, I thought it was remarkable. And it, if someone had told me the plot like I just did, I would never have expected that. It's because of all the things going on underneath the surface. Yeah. I just, I just loved it. Yeah, this is also Ozu's last uh, black and white film. Uh, after this, it would be all color, and so I think you do get more of those seasonal, those brighter, warmer seasons of the year. But uh, it is kind of a fitting note, in some ways, that he wrapped up his uh, his uh, filming in monochrome uh, with this dark film uh, dark visually dark thematically uh but really engrossing i yeah I may, maybe i'm interested in hear in hearing your take matt uh, but among you know ozu students or people who really you know get into his work i think tokyo twilight has become kind of a trendy alternate favorite of of ozu's films because it does uh, boast some of those unique features it's also got you know satsuko hara uh, in a role that's a little bit different than what we think of her classically as the you know the uh good daughter about to move away yeah um, i didn't i here, sorry i didn't introduce the the actors but the father is played by chishu ryu yeah. which you guys know i don't know a lot about his fatherly roles <laughs> but i but i know yeah, enough yeah. about the noriko trilogy to know that that's that's him and setsukahara mm-hmm. is his older daughter um and the younger one is uh, akiko i played by Ineko Arima, who's in several other Criterion movies, but maybe not as prominently mm-hmm. known. Um, anyway, I thought I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up my little introduction with that so that, um, that I'll All fit right. together. Cool. So, so, Matt, what do you think? I mean, is, is, have you had that same experience of Tokyo Twilight sort of being a little bit slightly elevated among other uh, late Ozu films, uh, like that's sort of what I observed? I have not actually. Oh, okay, um, that's interesting because I, I yeah no no I've I've noticed that as well that it that it's kind of uh, that that under the radar favorite for a lot of people who love Ozu. Um, I actually uh, prefer early spring. Tokyo Twilight may be my least favorite in this box. Um, I, I need to watch the end of summer again, but I, but I, I think oh this um, is exciting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, so uh, that's not to say that I don't love this movie because if I could only, you know, if I could only watch this Ozu movie um, and I wasn't allowed to watch any others, I'd still be perfectly satisfied. Um, but I, I do have um, some problems with it. I find it to be, um, it, it's kind of frustrating in a sense that it, I don't like it as much as um, I want to because... It's, it's certainly one of his most fascinating movies from the 50s, simply because it's so different from the other films that, that he made at this point. Um, you know, it, there, there are definitely um, similar movies from the 30s and 40s that he made um, that, you know, we can draw comparisons to as we go. But I think um, 
the the darkness. I mean, this is almost a noir film in a lot of ways. Uh, it has a lot of those elements. Um, uh, I think the first time I, I watched it, I called it Ozu's Mildred Pierce. And I think hmm. there's a lot of, um, you know, that, that kind of mix of melodrama and stylistic touches that, that, um, that go with the, the noirs that edged into women's pictures in the forties. Um, yeah. You kind of get into some of that Mizuguchi fallen women. Yes, type for of sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Narose as well. Like, uh, you know, uh, right. like, um, when a woman ascends the stairs definitely has a lot of those kind of streetscapes that are, are kind of smoky and, um, and kind of back alleys. I mean, the, the first hallway we see in this film is, um, is Akiko walking to, um, her, the house of, uh, her friends who I, you know, I assume she's trying to look for her boyfriend to tell him that she's pregnant. And the, the difference between that hallway and the hallways that we saw in early spring is, is very striking. Um, you know, it's just packed with things and there's milk cart crates and, um, you know, we're definitely in, in the completely, uh, different world of Tokyo than we were in the previous film. Um, and, and I love seeing those things. I mean, the opening sequence immediately, you know, after the, the sleek commuter trains of early spring, we see a freight train in, uh, instead in, in the opening shots here. So he's immediately establishing that this is not like, uh, the previous film that he made. Um, but in its own way shows, uh, the, the world, uh, of Tokyo that, um, people don't see in the, the average films that were being made at that time. Yeah. This um, is a much grittier environment. Uh, you know, yeah. people who are really kind of scraping by, um, almost huddled up <laughs> together just to, to make ends meet. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I will, I'm sure we'll get into that more, but, uh, just briefly, I think the, the issues that I have with it stem mostly from, the melodrama feeling spelled out in ways that I'm not uh, used to with Ozu. And I think sometimes um, show his weaknesses when he starts to step out of his comfort zone. Um, you know, uh, just as an example, the, the sequence where Akiko uh comes, comes home from the abortion and we immediately see, um, Setsuko Hara's daughter, uh, walking towards her and she collapses yeah. on the floor in tears. Um, yeah, yeah. Those know, are, well, they're, they're very bracing. I mean, they're really kind of devastating. Yes. And, and by bonded with those characters, but, but you're right. The hand is a little bit heavier. It's, it's very heavy. And, and I think in some other, uh, filmmakers films, uh, I would give it more, of a pass, but I think with Ozu, it's just, it's a tough sell for me because I feel like he's not doing what he does best. And, um, and so it becomes a little frustrating for me at times. Um, that said though, seeing him go into these, uh, into these subject matters and, and the way that he connects them to his typical Ozu themes and styles is really fascinating. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think, I do like this movie more uh, every time I watch it, but I also get frustrated with it more every time I watch it. Um, so, do, you know, do you think I, that's I, a, right. Go ahead. Do you think that's a sense of your own kind of, you know, 
what you want from Ozu versus what he's yeah, doing here. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. I, okay. I do think yeah. that's a big part of it. And, and I mean, you know, obviously, especially in his silence, there's plenty of Ozu's that don't do what quote unquote Ozu movies are supposed to do. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, walk cheerfully is not late spring. Um, but, I, <laughs> but I think, uh, you know, I think that because this movie still is so much, um, formally, an Ozu movie, uh, it becomes that much more striking the contrast between this film and the films that surround it. Um, yeah, we are yeah. right. When you, when you have Chishu Ryu and you have Satsukahara, there's a certain sort of standard or template that you're almost kind of conditioned <laughs> to anticipate. So, and it, so it is interesting. I mean, I, I, I probably, if I have to break a tie here, I'll probably go with Trevor saying I, I like this one just because it is a little bit more off the beat path but i think your your critique and and your summary is is very fair and very very perceptive mm-hmm. uh the fact that this is kind of ozu going off off the the tangent just a little bit there um and and really when he gets to those last three films in this set is i mean i don't know to me they just they just mount in in accumulative swells of greatness as we go forward from here. Uh, so to me, I I do see this as sort of the end of his black and white era with a, with a kind of a, a, a dark um, hard shot of, of life in, in some of its most tragic elements. And, and those, those scenes at the end, again, not to jump too far ahead, but, but the scenes at the end where each of the two young women, the sisters have their, moment of intense you know catharsis this emotional outburst um that's after things have been held in so long is just it it really is pretty devastating but but in a in a way that again i don't feel like it's just this maudlin weep fest and 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 i don't know maybe maybe for some it, it feels like he's he's hit those notes so hard that it's a little lacking in subtlety and, and maybe that's if it's a that's what you're looking for from ozu this is not it this is not <laughs> neither the literal or the you know, metaphoric flavor of green tea over rice <laughs> this is more like a, a you know kind of a little sake bottle upside the head <laughs> or something like that <laughs> well let me let me jump in really quick just to respond to some of matt's points because i, I totally i i see where you're coming from and agree with you um and yet, even that that scene that you brought up, where where Akiko comes back from having her abortion, there's something held back about that more than what I think other filmmakers might do. But much, I agree that it's probably more heavy handed than what Ozu might normally do. And it's that Akiko is standing in that hallway while her sister kind of runs back and forth. Her sister, who's always trying to get away from her own problems by helping other people or by tending to the house. I mean, that's her way of keeping her mind busy. And here her sister comes in. She's going out to get the futon. Akiko's standing alone in that hallway in that nice geometric space that's framing her. And she kind of slumps down. I mean, it's not an absolute faint like other directors might do. Uh, certainly right. the camera doesn't no, it's move. It's not a Serkian flourish. Or right. <laughs> and then right, right. she just glances to her right while she's on the floor. And we and we look down the hallway where she's fallen. And that's where, is it? A, I, 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 for some reason, was thinking it was a son. Um, at where, but where the, the her niece or nephew is, um, you know, playing at that point in time. And she starts to cry. I, I think there's a, a lot of subtlety there as well, and a lot of playfulness with, as, as you know, 
kind of building on your fractals with the rooms in our life, the things that, you know, the, the this hallway where she's isolated, um, taking a glance over to over her shoulder to see another aspect of what's happened to her. And there, that space, which I think also kind of relates to the, the space of her psychology, you know, there's, there's a child um, and, and all of that, that, that that reminds us of. Um, she says later on to her mother that she's never going to have a child. And I think that, I think that we can take that two ways. You know, she, she says, because I'll never do what you did. I'll never, you know, and, and we know that it also applies to her father. She doesn't get along with her father. And I kind of wondered too, is, is did something go wrong with this abortion? You know, does she, does she have more, more desperation because it isn't just simply, I have to raise my child in a world full of love and I can never do that? Or is it, man, and now I really can't even have a child? I don't know. That's probably me stretching it a little bit. But I, I love um, all of that stuff. And I think this may be an Ozu movie that kind of functioned for me as, um, as a key to unlock a chest uh, where I started to see underneath the surface of a lot of this stuff. Again, some of this could be me um, seeing things that aren't really there. But nevertheless, a lot of these subtleties that even while all this melodrama is going on on the surface, there's such little things in the looks of characters or in one smile that a character does in this scene, which accretes over time to really subvert so much of what this film seems to be going for, at least in my mind. And that's where a lot of my appreciation came from. I, I agree that there's there's a lot of melodrama, and I, frankly, I was very surprised when it was over to realize that that stuff didn't really do a lot for me. Um, and yet the film still had so much, almost because in spite of that, it's still exploring things that are almost so subtle. I don't know if I ever would have noticed them. And again... They might be so subtle because I'm inventing them. We'll have to see. I'll have to see if you guys agree with me or not on some of it. But well, the other big story uh, element here is is the the discovery of the mother. And and in my review for my journey through the eclipse series, I think I really did focus on this theme that um, the youngest daughter has been kept in the dark about the true story of her family. Uh, you know, she's been told, I think the mother is dead or, or, you know, and, and, and that's been that when actually the mother has been around all this time and, and she's been kind of willfully lied to and deceived and kept in the dark, not only by her, her father, but by her older sister. And this all becomes, you know, discovered over the course of the film. And I think, you know, empathizing with Akiko uh, as a as a character um she's feels very much a misfit in this world um she's internalized a lot of shame a lot of a sense that my mother was this you know terrible person and I'm I'm more her child than I am my father's and and you know again there's not an ex a lot of explication but you can just tell that uh, Akiko's self-loathing has really, you know, consumed and gotten the best of her. And it, it, to me, it's just incredibly tragic because it, it didn't need to be this way. There was a lack of communication. There was a, a, a an intentional deceptive, deceptive quality to her upbringing that has really kind of poisoned her, her, her conscience and her consciousness. And, and, to me, that is that's kind of the the overwhelming tragedy of it, and then there's the secondary tragedy of 
of uh, Satsuko Hara's character. Uh, who was her name here? Oh, gosh, it escapes me. Takako. Takako, um, right. So she she also has been living without a mother, and that, that's kind of brought toward, to the forefront towards the end. And she's got her own you know, pain and anguish of, of this uh, unhappy arranged marriage uh, to a, a man who's falling into alcoholism and presumably some level of abuse and, or neglect of her. And and so these these uh, these two, you know, really beautiful, remarkable young women have, you know, again, been kind of trampled on. And it does harken back to some of that Mizuguchi territory you know, that Trevor and I talked about several episodes ago about the plight of women in the Japanese you know, patriarchy and, and the societal expectations and what men were privileged to do or not to do on behalf of the women in their lives, whether they be wives or daughters or, or whatever. So, uh, yeah, to me, that that's, that's a big element of this story is... Mm-hmm. is Ozu's exploring the the pain that that ordinary women have to endure that could be avoided if men were more you know conscientious and ethical in, in how they treated them. I, I, and, I and love that. And that goes to the unplanned pregnancy as well. I mean, you know, Kiko is just trying to get this man to recognize he's got a responsibility here, and he's just doing everything he can to stay one step ahead of her. And when she does track him down. She realizes even if she were to get that commitment, he's kind of worthless anyway. So, you know, she really mm-hmm. is, you know, in this horrible dilemma. Well, and I think that's where I just loved the movie is seeing it not as all these melodramatic elements and plot points, but as Chishu Ryu's character. Who is this man, this central man? We begin the movie with him. Right. We end the movie with and, him. Yeah. We begin it yeah. with him getting his daughter's problems and end it with him finally being rid of his problems, daughters, because one is dead and the other one is going back home to a loveless marriage. And that's when the sun shines on this film. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And that's when he can go just go back to work yeah. and do his job. And, and, and it's yeah. so interesting to me because, you know, w- when I first watched it, I, I was it was a little off offsetting. Because he seems to be a good dad, you know, the one who did stick with his daughters, the one who is hearing their problems, the one who's respectable, who's, who's asking them for their for their concerns and trying to become involved. The one who says, well, I've, I've done my best. I know that I didn't. The one who apologizes to Takako for kind of pushing her into this marriage. Well, I probably should have done it in another way. But then he walks away from that conversation because now it's there's nothing I can do about it. And I became now I kind of despise the man. And I think that um, Ozu's really playing and subverting that pers- that this this figure, this father figure in this film, um, who at the end of the film, again, ha- has is seeing the relief of getting these daughters out of his house again Um and even if, even though one of them again is dead and the other one is leaving toward a, a terrible marriage that he knows about, he seems to think his job is done. And that made me realize he doesn't see his daughter's problems as things he should support them through. He sees them as problems for himself that he just needs to get out of his way. And at the end, he feels resolved. But there's so much darkness throughout, like... Just the, th- the the little subtle conversations that he has with them. And, and the, I think this is what I mean by the, this was almost a key to open a box for me. I realized that Ozu almost, you know, not only is it almost irrelevant what these characters are saying to each other 
it's also almost irrelevant the way that the movie is presenting them. It's all in this accretion of other details, these little sideways glances that Takako makes when her father says things like, I've done my best, that you don't notice. And and then they start to build up. And, and uh, you know, again, when I rewatched it, I was like, holy cow, this movie is chuck full of moments where we're supposed to look at, um, at Chishiryu's uh, father figure and think, this guy is a failure. This guy is a silly man, a deluded man, and he's really done a lot to ruin his daughter's lives. He probably is the reason his marriage ended, for all I know. We don't know the details there, but there's maybe a good case to be made, or at least a good possibility, that it was him. You know, was, and, and, and who knows what he did to kind of keep his respectable facade going, and he becomes the martyr who, who took care of his three children, because he did have a son who died as well, but... But it's, I think Ozu is subverting it so much. And that's where the richness of this one um, was for me. I'm not sure if, if I wouldn't have latched onto this. And again, I'm still wondering if I'm inventing half of it or seeing things that aren't <laughs> there. But I, I think that's the beauty of Ozu. I think they are there. <laughs> I think they're yeah. just really kind of kind of subtle. And, and I think well, when he shows sunlight add, at the end, add, he's yeah, saying just to add this to is no, not really good. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no. Sorry. Uh, yeah, no, no. Uh, just to add to what you're saying, I mean, he's telling her, to go see her mother uh, as she gets on the train to go away. Why doesn't he go see her? That's the mother of, of his kids. Why hasn't he said anything? Why is yeah. he, why is she supposed to forgive her when he will not forgive her himself? And it's one of those uh, cases where it looks like he's saying the right thing. Right. It looks like he's being a magnanimous man who's saying, you know, go and go and talk to your mom. But if, you know, there is another perspective to it where he's being a wuss and maybe even just pushing his daughter out. Right. Yeah, but but you know, he has the veneer of the again, the respectable businessman, the the you know, the gentleman of substance of uh maybe that's not necessarily a Japanese phrasing, but but that's you know, that that is the that's the impression and that's really the privilege of being this, you know, somewhat venerable, you know, businessman and it's it's it as as trevor was maybe you know kind of describing the end i'm thinking boy this is almost like the diametrically opposite of the ending of like late spring and it where chishiryu is peeling his apple in this incredibly mournful melancholy state here he's just almost not you know clicking his heels but he's just right back to business (laughs) yeah Well, you know, I think that the mother story in this film is kind of the MacGuffin. Um, The the daughter's uh, stories are really not about the mother turning up. Um, The the mother turning up is the means with which their stories are resolved. Um, It's a catalyst, yeah. Yeah, and in the case of of Setsuko Hara, it's resolved in... um, well, it's resolved in in a in a melancholy in a melancholic way, right? Because she's she's settling. She's she, going to go she's back. Reali- and make it she's work realized out, right? that she wants her, you know, her, her. I think it is a daughter. She wants her daughter to have a family, and uh, she wants to break the cycle. I don't necessarily know if that's going to happen with an abusive husband, um, but you know, there, there's at least some hope there that there will be change and something will be different. Um, and with, with Akiko, uh, it's this, her story is really about, um, 
the pregnancy that she has and that she, you know, is feels conflicted about this boyfriend that she, um, you know, needs something to happen basically that doesn't happen. And it sends her into a tailspin. Um, and, and, you know, her, her story is resolved tragically. And there's, there's misunderstanding on both sides about what those stories are because, um, Setsuko Hara's story is really about how she was in love with somebody that she wanted to marry and her father wouldn't let her. And right, right, she's right. living this, this tragic life now because of that decision that was made. And Akiko has been lied to about something in her family and most likely caused her to kind of uh, lash out in the way that she has, um, you know, neglecting her schoolwork, uh, dropping out of school. And, um, you know, getting in with seedy, seedy fellows that play cards. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, well, and, and, and this sense that things were just not quite right. I mean, she, she was living under false pretenses right. of the story that had been told to her. She maybe didn't know that consciously, but there was just something that just didn't quite add up. And, you know, when she first encounters that woman in the Mahjong part or she goes back and she tells her, it was almost as if she could have been our mother, you know, and, and, you know, it, that is, you know, that is a little playing of melodramatic foreshadowing and all of that. And that is somewhat un-Ozu like, but I guess because it's a variation to the routine, it, it's a little bit more refreshing or stands out a little bit more that way. Uh, this, this coincidence that just turns into this, you know development here so yeah i i guess I, I probably will hold to my idea that it's the it's the it's the deception it's the um even much of my call brainwashing of of akiko that sent her on this downward spiral and of course the the other tragedy is of her you know dashing in front of the train whether it was intentional suicidal uh, gesture or just being overwrought by emotions is just her youth, just her spontaneity and just the, the, the strength of the emotions. We talked a little bit about goldfish in the previous movie about a young woman who's just kind of understanding or coming to grips with the, the powers of her erotic appeal and her, her attraction to men and her own emotional response to that. Here's sort of the flip side of a young woman who's really still not reached full emotional maturity. Um, and is, you know, allowing these adversities, which are, you know, certainly no trivial thing by any means, you know, an unplanned pregnancy, an unresponsive father of the baby, uh, you know, very difficult to know what your future is going to look like. And then there's the abortion and the, you know, the effects of that, of that procedure of, of her own conscience, all of those things, you know, put her in this extremely delicate, vulnerable position and she does something stupid and it costs her her life. And, you know, I mean, again, I've, I've referred to my work social work um, and working with impulsive uh, risk at risk young people. And <laughs> I see that type of thing where the, the brain just hasn't really fully formed yet to say, what's a good rational solution to this dilemma that I'm facing? And they do r- reckless things with, with tragic results. And so, I, again, I sort of see that playing itself out here. You know, Ozu's talking about young people in his society who often don't have the tools or haven't had the, the skills developed or the, the solid parenting that's really attending to their needs to figure out what to do when they find themselves in very adult dilemmas and 
with no clear resolution or, or uh, game plan of what to do next when they when they find themselves stuck like that. So, yeah, to me, again, it, it sort of hits some of my own personal interest in, in stories that deal with young people coming of age and, and how they respond to life's problems. The goldfish comparison makes a lot of sense. I mean, they're two uh, characters. They both wear Western-style clothing. They're very young and vivacious, although Kiko obviously is is on the downside, the downturn at the moment. Yeah. Um, but uh, and then uh, one interesting parallel I saw there was that um, you know you don't see a lot of hair brushing in Ozu movies, but right. um, Akiko <laughs> was brushing her hair during that scene where she says it almost seemed like it was our mother, and and Goldfish is brushing her scene her hair during mm-hmm. the scene um, after they um, sleep together when she's confessing that she hates his wife and all these things. So I, I, I saw that comparison as well. That that's, yeah, that's a cool analogy. And, and again, not, you know, Ozu definitely directed them brush your hair during this scene. You know, there's a, there's a statement about whether it's vanity or just, you know, sex appeal and, uh, and, and the thoughts going through a young woman's minds in that, in that moment. Now, some of the things you said, David, did bring me back to the father figure again. I hope I'm not regressing our conversation. No, that's, um, no just keep it going. But thinking of the lies that she's been told, and again, they they continue to live in, in under these deceptions. After she's dead, Takako goes to the mother and says, hey, Akiko's dead, and it's your fault. But but we, we, we know better um, mm-hmm. because Akiko went there to the mother hoping desperately to find out that she's actually not her father's child. She doesn't right. feel like her father. Her father has this this um, this character that she finds distasteful, but she actually has deluded herself into thinking it's that her father is pure and she is impure. Her father has, has basically helped her to that point um, where that's what she's hoping. She hopes she has some excuse for being who she is, for existing, for her identity, um, for the desires that she has. And that that is because her mother is a little bit on the fringe of society. And she hopes that, you know, maybe her real father is as well. And that that might, might. Well, give I her think her, she uh, thinks. Go ahead. Right. Well, I think she thinks of her mother as kind of a horror figure, a, a, a woman who sleeps around mm-hmm, and has mm-hmm. affairs with other men, because that's the kind of woman she obviously is. You know, she's yeah. she's sleeping with men that she's not married to, and she's, and again, internalized a lot of these kind of slutty, you know, self concepts. Well, when and her now, when her yeah. boyfriend says, "I'm not even sure if it's my child," I mean that right. that's almost a moment where she must have thought. Oh, maybe I'm not my father's child. You know, that's a devastating, jerky thing for him to say. And it almost, you know, it hurts her dearly at that point. But there must be some truth to it because it's also a moment where she goes, that might be my own story. That might be the reason that I'm who I am and how I am. And I can Mm -hmm. live with that. But living in this life where my father has his expectations and and I should be meeting up to them, that... I can't do, you know, and again, whether it was yeah. suicide or just um, just her running out in emotion um, after her meeting with her boyfriend. Um, I, I don't know. And I love how Ozu covers that first with the moment of humor 
It's one of the only moments of humor in the film when she gets up and just slaps her boyfriend and keeps slapping him. There's so many moments in Mozu films where character gets slapped and just sits there. Um, but she's doing that to her boyfriend and runs out. And I love how the owner of the the um, noodle cafe um, comes out and, and is like, whoa, that that surprised me. That that, that shocked me. I, I spilled some of the sake as he's bringing it out. Just right. Just this old man who... You know, has witnessed an uncomfortable situation and is is able to almost diffuse it a little bit by talking about how shocking it was even to him as if he's any of any importance <laughs> to what has just happened. Yeah. Well, but he also and then he shows up in the in the, yeah, kind of the yeah. hospital recovery room, too. And he, well, he becomes a real person, a real character. And I, and I like that moment just because, again, it's another total you know side bit character but he's he's given some dimensionality by the lines uh, in his script and and by his concern i mean he's just a real salt of the earth guy who did the right thing in a movie where a lot of people are doing the wrong thing you know well and it shows her that she has this other world that he knew her so well you know that mm-hmm. that she was going and 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 living this entire life that her family was unaware of and yeah. that makes it all the more tragic when they're convinced that the mother was responsible for, and I do think it was a suicide attempt, if only just yeah. because of the line when she's in bed saying that she's she wants to live. I think that that you know is, is a yeah. clear change of heart on her part. Um, yep. But I, but I think you know yeah, it's just it's so tragic that they don't fully understand uh, you know the younger sibling um, in the family and and that she. Uh, you know, that it came to this, that that misunderstanding was the result, even if it wasn't the mother that, that drew her to this point, you know, if she had had the support um, from her family within her real life, the life, the problems that she was really having, um, you know, instead of the, the, the father being more interested in saving face with the fact that she was bothering, borrowing money from people, if he had, had asked her, well, what do you need this money for? You know, right. it, 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 you know, there could have been more emotional support um, in order for her to get through the crisis that she was having. Right. But he didn't really want to be troubled with the messy right. details like, OK, we'll just let that one slide on by so I can stay on my comfortable routine here. Well, and 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 thinking of, of her, the younger daughter not understanding the situation, I think it's fully uh, completely tragic too that Takako seems to get it but also choose to not get it. There are too many moments in the movie where she recognizes her father um, for who he is um, when she's begging him, let Takako or let Akiko go to bed tonight. Don't talk to her about this right now. Let her go to bed. And he keeps pushing and she's just being, you know, as pleasant as she can or polite as she can and saying, let this go tonight. She notices this stuff. And yet at the end, she's she, it, it, when she blames the mom, um, there's some lashing out there that's just completely indirect and, and or directed to the wrong person. Um, and I feel like well, she knows I think it's that. It's also just a, I think it's a payback from years gone. Yeah. By. It's, it's something that's been brewing and yeah. stewing and it's inside her. And now she's finally got that moment to just let her have it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it is, it is misdirected. It's, it's unnecessarily, you know, it makes it, sense. Pain inducing. <laughs> it, 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 it's nothing unnatural about that re- response. Well, it's, 
It's vengeance. Uh-huh. It's frustration. It's grief. It's sadness. It's spite. It's all those things. But I, and and there's also she could have handled it better. Yeah, <laughs> you know? and it, uh, certainly yeah. there's that angle. But it's it's so sad to me that she finds the balance of this hatred and anger in going back to her husband, you know, almost completely mistaking again, just saying, you know, what, I'll, I'll prefer this cloak of, of deception and, and I'll live under this old lifestyle. Um, that's going to be very similar to my father. You know, they mistake it for the absence of a, of a motherly figure in their life. And, and, and surely that, you know, that's too complex to say that had nothing to do with any of this. Um, but, what she's failing to to really reckon with in her own is how devastating these men are, um, both her father and her husband, and how detrimental that has been in her life, Akiko's life, and could be in her own child's life. And that's how the film ends with birdsong and sunlight. And I I, I just, you know, sometimes I don't care if Ozu meant that. I feel like he did, though. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I, I well, don't know. Yeah. I feel like he was really, I feel like he was being subversive there rather than just I got to tack on a bit of sunlight into this otherwise dreary oh, I, story. I th- no, I think I think it's a very backhanded criticism, uh, almost a slam of just just as the plight of the salaryman is almost unchangeable. I mean, the corporations are what they are. Nothing's going to change them. Nothing's going to revolutionize the social order. So you've got to do your best and adapt to it, and and find moments of satisfaction within this structured ordeal this routine that you're locked into it's it's the same with 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 the patriarchy i mean the the older men will continue i mean even though a lot of ozu's other films talk about the erosion of credibility of the older men in charge in society uh they still have that privilege and he still has the ability to sort of say okay um my my pesky daughters uh, you know have moved on uh, again it's not declared in so many words and he's never going to say he's glad to be rid of them but uh he's certainly not troubling himself to go back to Takako and say hey how are you and your husband getting along and and you know when he does have that moment earlier on with the husband and and he could be the the patriarch in the sense of young man you need to treat my daughter with more respect you need to straighten up and lay off the booze and he's pretty passive in all of that he's not really willing to rock the boat uh, he just comes back and says, yeah, yeah, he's changed. He's he's not like the the guy that I hooked you or arranged your marriage with you know, back then. He's he's kind of going downhill, but he doesn't really do anything about it. You know, and so there is this, this you know, kind of aggravating passivity. Uh, but Ozu is recognizing that, you know, he's not a social crusader. He's not out here to say, we need to change our ways, people. Right. He's reflecting reality and saying, this is how it is. And... Um, it's not going to be changing anytime soon. Yeah, and he'll depict that 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 privilege of the patriarchy in a completely different way in the next film that we cover. But I, I think mm-hmm. the in in this movie, and you know, just just like Trevor is concerned that he's reading too much into this. Forgive me if I go a little uh, to to uh, film school on you, but I think you know, there's so much of of World War II in Ozu's fifties films. And interestingly, this this has some of the the least amount of that, literally, in the sense that really the only mention I think of of anything to do with World War II is that the the man that the mother ran off with died in a prison camp in Russia uh, during the war, um, and yet this 
this relationship with the father and the, the, the secrets and sort of past that the, that the, the daughters have to, to reckon with, um, feels very much like this, uh, this, this, you know, terrible thing that happened in Japan's past, uh, recent past to the previous generation, um, that they don't want to talk about and that they, um, are trying to, uh, use industrialization and, um, the sort of force of, of stoic character to push past and, um, make this new, uh, you know, future for themselves, this new sunny, bright future for themselves. Um, and yet they, they kind of can't escape that history. It keeps catching up with them. Um, even when they, even when they, uh, try to sweep it under the rug. Um, and I, I think there is, uh, despite the fact that nobody meets up with their war buddies in this movie, they, they don't run into a, an old, uh, uh, soldier in a pachinko parlor like they do in flavor of green tea over rice that um, this is uh, the movie that has the most of that weight behind it that there's this this dark dark thing in the past that you know we may be through with the past but the past ain't through with us and I, mm-hmm. I, th- I see that in this movie quite a bit um, and and that's the part of the film that I, I really respond to um, and and, you know, I, I, I do think uh, he executed very well. And I'm not surprised because of that, that this movie d- did not, um, that was not particularly successful critically or commercially, because that's a very uh, sort of deep scar to reckon with uh, when you're going to the movies uh, to, to pass a couple of hours. Um, yeah. And, and even some of those films that do more overtly try to work through some of the you know, the tragedies of the war, you know, 24 eyes or something like that. I mean, they, they do have a much more sort of uplifting right. resolution uh, while also trying to take a pretty clear eyed look at, at the pain and, and trauma of those, of those very tragic years. Of women in particular. This one, yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Here you're just, you know, they're just dropping a lot of pain in your lap. And that's exactly like you say, it's not necessarily what people go to the movies for. And so, um, you know, again, for popular entertainment for, Hey, let's just go out and see the latest Ozu. Yeah. I can sort of see where word of mouth might've diminished and say, ah, this one here <laughs> a little different, but you know, for, for my purposes and, and for the purposes of, of viewers today, um, a very fascinating insight into, you know, the, the, the complex but very subtle and elevated uh, perceptions of of Ozu and it is this is a unique film in his work for this period of time anyways again I I, I, I do feel like the, the Setsuko Hara's kind of breakdown really made a huge impact on me again watching it again uh, you know you don't see characters and in, in side profiles very often in Ozu films but in key moments like like hers when she just these full body sobs it's 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 powerful it's just another reason why Satsukahara is just an inimitable uh, one of a kind presence in, in all the history of cinema so I know you're kind of a fan of hers aren't you Matt <laughs> I yeah I have a <laughs> yeah no I mean I think you she's look like incredible her, right? in this I movie <laughs> to yes. me anyway <laughs> on, yeah on the Facebook I, I, I have a I have a Setsuko Hara look let's just say uh, no I, I mean I think that 
it, it's interesting. This the the sequence at the end of this movie after Akiko dies is one of the most mournful in Ozu's filmography. Yeah. I mean, it, it's and there's a lot of movie left after that. So it's not yeah. five or ten minutes, uh, you know. And and you know, there's there's plenty of main character deaths in Ozu's films. Um, you know, just in Tokyo Story. The, the mother's death is not a, sorry, spoiler, Trevor. <laughs> it's not, uh, it's, it's not, my own um, fault. <laughs> it's not treated in, in quite the same tragic way as, uh, you know, we see how it affects the other characters in the film, but this really feels like a loss. Um, and, and it feels like a loss to Ozu's omniscient narrator you know, in a lot of ways. You know, mm-hmm. we, we feel like we're pulling back from these characters. There's a lot more long shots. I mean, the scene where she breaks down and we see her from behind, um, you know, framed in the smaller door frame um, from the distance in the other room, it, it's it's very um, almost disturbing in, in how intense emotionally it is. Um, yeah. And and even, you know, the, the choral music as the, as the, um, the mother is pulling out of the train station, it's very unlike anything else in, in Ozu's catalog. And so, um, you know, again, these are the things that I find really fascinating about the movie. Um, and it's just those, those, the deviations that I, I'm less, uh, you know, in love with are the things that keep me from kind of fully embracing it. Hmm. Well, we are running up against some time limits, so I think this is probably the point we're going to have to wrap up the conversation for this particular episode. Um, any last comments before I just kind of give closing remarks, guys? Uh, I do want to be conscious of uh, commitments we got to keep here. I am good. This was lovely. All right. Yeah. Well, Matt, I think you, you kind of gave a nice summation as well. So uh, I do encourage uh, listeners to interact with us. If you've got any comments you want to drop, uh, find us on the Criterion Cast page, uh, Facebook, uh, our Twitter account. Uh, you, I think you know how to get a hold of us. But Matt, uh, since uh, you're a first time guest here, how can the listeners find you online? Um, well, I uh, administer a Facebook group called Criterion Considered that's uh, talking about all things Criterion and Eclipse um, and Filmstruck. So if you want to want to find me, I'm usually on there. Um, and I'm also uh, Matthew E.G. on Twitter and uh, Letterboxd. And uh, so come on and um, talk Ozu because I, I love to do it. Fantastic. Well, I'll put links to your uh, contact information on our show notes. So, yeah, check them out on Criterion Cast. Uh, we have a lot of links. I've done a lot of research to find some well-written reviews, different perspectives on these films, as well as the life and career of Yazajiro Ozu. We'll be back in a couple weeks with uh, part two, talking about Equinox Flower, Good Morning, and uh, <laughs> uh, Floating Weeds. All right. So thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, keep it real, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.